So, the last time we met, we had looked at the language of Scripture. We had talked a little bit and compared to it certain basic elements in Greek philosophy. And today, I'd like to begin by presenting to you a couple of aspects from the writings of Philo of Alexandria. In his theology, it seems that Philo, whose years are from around 25 BC to around AD 50, so he's a contemporary of Christ, it seems that Philo anticipates both the apologists, the early apologists, and Clement of Alexandria in his synthesis of scripture and pagan philosophy. He's regarded as representative of the so-called Middle Platonist school, the Stoicized form of Platonism, which appears in the Roman world from the beginning of the first century BC because of the form of his understanding of the soul's ascent towards God. This is how he's usually placed. He's considered as important because of the influence which he exerted on the fathers, particularly of the Alexandrian tradition. So let's say one or two things about him in order to give us a context. Some of Philo's distinguishing characteristics. First of all, he was a devout Jew and he's regarded as a lover of allegory in his interpretation of scripture. On the theological plain, he insisted that God is radically unknowable. In a treatise entitled On the Special Laws, De Specialibus Legibus, section 1, paragraph 43, following, he says, The apprehension of me is something more than human nature, yea, even the whole heaven and universe will be able to contain. The apprehension of me is something more than human nature, yea, even the whole heaven and universe will be able to contain. And this apophatic element may also be seen throughout his writings, among other places, in another work called On the Immutability of God. On the Immutability of God. Quod Deus Immutabilis Sit. Where he says, speaking rhetorically on behalf of Elohim, 
Do not, however, suppose that the existent which truly exists is apprehended by any man. For we have in us no organ by which we can envisage it, neither in sense, for it is imperceptible by sense, nor yet in mind. And here he's referring to the nous. And why should we wonder that the existent cannot be apprehended by men when even the mind in each of us, the highest part of each of us, is unknown to us? For who knows the essential nature of the soul? Asks Philo. So there you can see already strong apophatic character to his theology, to the question of the knowledge of God, man's capacity to know God, and in his strong apophatic language, we see why many regard him as the father of the mystical tradition. We've already said before that mystical, mystical theology, the mystical tradition, for the orthodox is not something other than mainstream. It's not a marginal theology. It's not something that's reserved for certain eccentric figures who hover on the margins of the theological tradition in Christianity. Mystical is the only theology that we have because it's all about encountering God and the word mystical denotes that initiation, the way by which we come to encounter the great God. Now, Philo's position is very different to that of Platonism. As we had noted when we looked briefly at the Greek philosophical tradition, mainly the Platonist. We said that the Deus Philosophorum, God of the philosophers, is an impersonal God. And we also noted that that God, the suprapersonal absolute, cannot even be aware of the world because the world is characterized by change, movement, which means coming into being, passing out of existence, which signifies also imperfection. So the Supreme Being, which is perfect according to the philosophers, has to be motionless, has to be a static being. Although it causes everything that moves, it itself 
has to remain unmoved. And that's why you have in the tradition of Aristotle the name, the unmoved mover. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Do you ever wish you could sit in on a conversation with some of your favorite authors and listen to them talk about their writing process, their path to publication, and of course, their newest novels? Hi, I'm Marissa Meyer, best-selling author of The Lunar Chronicles, and I would love for you to check out the Happy Writer podcast, where every week I talk with other writers about books, craft, inspiration, and how to bring a little more joy into our lives. The Happy Writer is available wherever you get your podcasts or find us on Instagram at Happy Writer Podcast. Well, with Philo, who of course is aware of all of this, he's aware of the, the philosophies around him, his position is very different because he believes in a personal God. He believes in the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. He believes in a God who reveals himself, not in the deity of Aristotle, but in the God who loves his creation. I think it's worth mentioning here that this was a, an occasion for ridicule in late antiquity when the Christians appeared in the Greco-Roman world, the Hellenistic world, and began to preach the God of love, because in philosophical terms, love meant weakness. That's an oxymoron to say God is love. Love signifies necessity. Love signifies need, being incomplete without the object of one's love. And we see this even on the human, emotional, and psychological level. Uh, but philosophically speaking, it's about simplicity, divine simplicity, and perfection. But Philo doesn't hesitate to present to his pagan intellectual contemporaries the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who loves his creation. And it's Philo who first introduces the notion of divine darkness in reference to Moses. Philo is the first to use Moses as a paradigm for the soul's ascent towards God. In his treatise called On the Migration of Abraham, Philo discerns three stages. The first, he calls conversion to pure religion. The second, he refers to as self-knowledge, which involves the acquiring of moral purity. And third, knowledge of God. Take a look at uh, 
de migrazione Abrahami, on the migration of Abraham, paragraph or section 195 following. It's also important to note something that Father George Florovsky mentions in volume 8 of his complete works, page 87. On page 87, Father George says, Philo brings a new thought to philosophy, a distinction that was never previously made, but a distinction that will become vital for the Greek and Byzantine fathers, culminating in the thought of St. Gregory Palamas. The distinction, of course, to which Father George is referring is that of the created and the uncreated. We said before that in the pagan world, at least the Greco-Roman world of antiquity, nothing came out of nothing. Everything pre-existed. Even the amorphous, formless stuff out of which things are made even that existed pre-eternally. That was how the pagans thought. But Philo, because he is basing his philosophy, quote-unquote, on the Old Testament scriptures, of course has the fundamental distinction of the created and the uncreated. So whereas in Platonism we have an intellectual kinship between the soul and God, in Philo, we find the strict distinction between the created and the uncreated. Let's take a look at an example. We've already mentioned the fact that for Philo, there is no organ, no instrument, nothing, even the mind of the human being cannot conceive of God, cannot even know the essential nature of the soul. In this treatise, which is called The Worse Attacks the Better, Quod deterius potiori insidiari solet, The Worse Attacks the Better. In section 18, this is what Philo says. Let us not then, the pupils of Moses, be any longer at a loss as to how man came to have a conception of the invisible God. How did man come to have a conception of a God who is invisible? This is what Philo says by way of explanation. For Moses himself learnt it by a divine communication. It was revealed, revealed to Moses, and has taught us how it was. He stated it thus, The Creator wrought for the body no soul capable by itself of seeing its maker, but accounting that it would be greatly to the advantage 
of the thing wrought, should it obtain a conception of him who wrought it, since this is what determines happiness and blessedness, he, God, breathed into him from above of his own deity. This is the ruach, the panevma of God. He breathed into man of his own deity. The invisible deity stamped on the invisible soul the impression of itself to the end for the purpose that not even the terrestrial region should be without a share in the image of God. So this is the image of God, that man was created capable of containing the ruach, pnevma, the spirit of God. And we know from the epistles of St. Paul, especially, and the scriptures generally, that man is body, soul, and spirit. That would constitute normal man. Man as he was created to be. So without the spirit of God, because God is the source of life, not surprising that we move towards death, death and corruption. And man imitates, falls to the level, shall we say, of beasts, and not only beasts, but of demons. So God breathed into Adam from above of his own deity. Now, in response to Moses' appeal, asking God to reveal himself, Exodus 33, verses 13 to 23, Yahweh is made to reply, Thy zeal I approve as praiseworthy, but the request cannot fitly be granted to any that are brought into being by creation. Why is this? Why is this request denied? That the request cannot fitly be granted to any that are brought into being by creation. This is where, interestingly, Philo also gives us the seeds of another distinction that becomes very important later on. It's there from the beginning, but it plays a decisive role in the Hesychast controversies of the 13th and 14th centuries. God, according to Philo, is unknowable in his nature, physis, but he is revealed to us in his powers or his works, his vinamis, 
dunamis. It's interesting the way that Philo talks about these powers because it's by God's powers that Yahweh reveals himself. And the interesting thing is that although the nature of God, the physis, divine nature, is unknowable, period, God reveals himself, God makes himself known to his creature by his powers, but his powers themselves are also unknowable. So there's two ways in which we're using the, the verb to know here. The first is God revealing himself. In other words, the experience of God's revelation is described as knowing. Coming to know God means to receive the revelation of God. God discloses himself. But in that disclosure, although God is revealed, yet he remains hidden. In other words, his powers by which he reveals himself are not themselves knowable. They cannot be described because, well, we'll come to that. Why? But this is given in another treatise. Actually, it's a treatise that we mentioned already on the special laws. It's in the treatise on the special laws, section 1, this time paragraphs 45 to 47, which continues from where Moses asked God to reveal himself. Philo says, when Moses heard this, he addressed to him a second petition and said, I bow before thy admonitions that I never could have received the vision of thee clearly manifested, but I beseech thee that I may at least see the glory that surrounds thee. So, interestingly, Philo is putting in the mouth of Moses a second request, not daring to ask God for a clear vision, but asking that he might at least be granted a vision of the glory that surrounds Yahweh. What is this glory? What does this mean? Actually, Philo goes on to say, he says, And by thy glory I understand the powers that keep God around thee, of whom I would fain gain apprehension, for though hitherto that has escaped me, the thought of it creates in me a mighty longing to have knowledge of them. And to this second petition, Yahweh is made to answer, The powers which thou seekest to know are discerned not by sight, but by mind, even as I, whose they are, am discerned by mind and not by sight. 
And when I say they are discerned by mind, nous is referring to nous here significantly. And we'll talk more about the nous in due course. But he says, and when I say they are discerned by mind, I speak not of those things which are now actually apprehended by the nous, but mean that if these other powers could be apprehended, it would not be by sense, but by nous at its purest. So the purified nous, obviously purified by God, the purified nous is capable of seeing the glory that surrounds Yahweh and the glory that surrounds Yahweh, the vision of the glory that surrounds Yahweh is the vision of the powers that keep God. Now that sounds at first sight as though these powers might be angels. But the more he talks about them, the less likely that seems. Because he goes on here, for example, he says, but while in their essence they are beyond your apprehension, they nevertheless present to your sight a sort of impress and copy of their active workings. So here, first of all, let's say that I think we see the seeds of the distinction found later in the Cappadocian Fathers and in others between the essence and energies of God. But in pursuing this question further, in Philo, we have to ask, well, what are these powers? Does he give them a name? And the answer is, yes, he does, but he never attempts to enumerate all of them. Two powers in particular, the kingly and the beneficent, or occasionally the kingly and the creative powers are particularly important to Philo. Philo's dunamis or powers are an attempt to preserve the transcendence and simplicity of God whilst accounting for the multiplicity of the world. Yes, but let's take a look again at the treatise on the special laws where he says a little more about these powers. This time, the treatise on the special laws, section 1, paragraphs 49 following. Do not then hope ever to be able to apprehend me or any of my powers in our essence. It's quite explicit and blunt. But, continues Philo, I readily and with right goodwill will admit you to share of what is attainable, 
That means that I bid you come and contemplate the universe and its contents, a spectacle apprehended not by the eye of the body, but by the unsleeping eyes of the noose. Only let there be a constant and profound longing for wisdom which fills its scholars and disciples with verities glorious in their exceeding loveliness. Here we have, as I said, a very clear statement to the effect that the apprehension of God or his powers is not possible. But he bids us through Moses to come and contemplate the universe and its contents, a spectacle apprehended not by the eye of the body, but by the unsleeping eyes of the mind. So the vision of the universe and its contents This sounds like what St. Maximus, the confessor, identifies as natural contemplation. That by, by the grace of the Holy Spirit, we are enabled to see the world as it truly is. The world filled with the glory of God. Heaven and earth are full of thy glory. This vision is bestowed upon man. Man's noose is enabled to behold creation, the universe, as it is, as it really is, and so on and so forth. Now, at this point, we have to introduce the second great contribution that Philo makes to philosophy, because even though very few pages are usually devoted to Philo in histories of philosophy, it cannot be ignored. And so he's there. And he's there because of the peculiar way that he presents the Logos. As I said before, not by us, not by the, the church, but by philosophers, he's usually classed as a middle Platonist. And the middle Platonists in their hierarchy of being had a very special place for Logos. The Logos. Now, Philo's Logos theology... As Father Andrew Louth points out in his Origins of the Christian Mystical Tradition, Philo's Logos theology is presented in the context of his understanding of the mystical way. And it is said that he's developing here the Stoic idea of the divine Logos or reason that underlies and fashions all things. For Philo, with his pronounced doctrine of a transcendent God, 
in contrast to the Stoic immanentism, as soon as you start breaking down what Philo actually says, you see that he's not quite Middle Platonist. He doesn't fit into the Middle Platonist mold. And then he's not quite Stoic because the Stoics had this immanentism where the Logos is everything. And you see that Philo's doctrine speaks of a transcendent God where the Logos is indeed a mediator between the transcendent God and the world. And so he has both transcendent and imminent aspects. But to cut a long story short, it doesn't fit comfortably in these categories because these categories are not correct. It's not right to apply them to Philo. Philo is coming from a totally different tradition. He's coming from the tradition of the Old Testament. And as we said before, the minute he introduces the created-uncreated distinction, the way that it exists in the Bible, he's in a totally different world, a fundamentally different world. And the proof of this, or one of the proofs of this, is that there's another very significant dimension to Philo's Logos theology, which is seldom remarked upon. Father Andrew Louth brings it out in his book. But it concerns the idea of the Logos not as divine reason, as in philosophy, as in Stoic philosophy, as in the other philosophies, but the idea of God as one who speaks, because the word for the one who speaks is oleo. So the logos for Philo is the one who speaks. He is the one who said, let us make man in our own image and after our own likeness. It's not difficult to see the connection, of course, based on Genesis 1, between creating and speaking. Now, in another treatise on flight and finding, section 95, Philo speaks of the powers of him who speaks, tulegondos, in the genitive, olegon tulegondos, the genitive, the powers of the one who speaks. Their leader, he says, being the creative power, in the exercise of which the creator produced the universe by his word, logo, in the dative, the dative of instrument. We know from the Psalms that he spake and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast and they were created and so on. So in another passage, this time in Philo's treatise on the cherubim, section 28, Philo is contemplating 
the mercy seat. And he says, in the midst between the two cherubs, the cherubim on the mercy seat, he says, there is a third which unites them. Logos. For it is through Logos, the Logos, that God is both ruler and good. Of these two powers, sovereignty and goodness, the two cherubim are symbols. As the fiery sword is the symbol of the translation says reason. It's referring to the Logos again. The fiery sword is the symbol of reason. For exceeding swift and of burning heat is the Logos. And chiefly so, the Logos of the cause, capital C. For it alone preceded and outran all things, conceived before them all, manifest above them all. Why does the Logos appear above and between the cherubim who represent the two powers of God? Two senior powers, we can say. This can be seen from the treatise on flight and finding where we read that the Logos is himself the image of God, chiefest of all beings intellectually perceived, placed nearest with no intervening distance to the alone truly existent one. For we read, I will talk with thee from above the mercy seat between the two cherubim, Exodus 25, verse 21. Words which show that while the Logos is the charioteer of the powers, so he has the image of the chariot with two horses, the two powers, the charioteer is the Logos. He who talks is seated in the chariot, giving direction to the charioteer for the right wielding of the reins of the universe. That's on flight and finding section 101. So there's a very interesting image, uh, picture emerging from this. As Father Andrew Louth puts it, although there seems to be some confusion as to whether the Logos is the word spoken by God or the one to whom God speaks, it seems clear enough that in the word there is direct communication with God as opposed to the indirect experience of him afforded by the other powers. Not sure about that, to tell you the truth. But I think it's true that the communication is between the one seated in the chariot and speaking 
and the charioteer, the one who's driving the chariot. And interestingly, take a look at this. Philo draws a distinction between the swift and the less sure-footed. In the soul's quest for God, the swift will strive towards the divine logos. And he says again on flight and finding, the man who is capable of running swiftly, it bids not to stay to draw breath, but to pass forward to the supreme divine logos, who is the fountain of wisdom, in order that he may draw from the stream and released from death, gain life eternal as his prize. One less sure-footed, it directs to the power to which Moses gives the name God, since by it the universe was established and ordered. It urges him to flee for refuge to the creative power, knowing that to one who has grasped the fact that the whole world was brought into being, a vast good accrues, even the knowledge of its maker, which straightway wins the thing created to love him to whom it owes its being. One who is less ready, it urges to betake himself to the kingly power, for fear of the sovereign has a force of correction to admonish the subject where a father's kindness has none such for the child. Let's take a break and come back to unpack this passage, which is so important in Philo of Alexandria's Logos theology. <laughs> 